Bookcraft is pleased to present Cana, The Cleansing, and Jacob's Well by Dr. Truman G. Madsen from the series Jesus of Nazareth. In the Gospel of John, there are seven miracles. The first is the miracle of turning water to wine, and the last is the miracle of the resuscitation of Lazarus. It's only in the Gospel of John that we read of the first miracle. Scholars assign the time for this at March in the year 27, shortly after the baptismal scene. They do so because the narrative begins with the phrase, on the third day, and they presume it means three days after Jesus' baptism. Another possibility is to read it as the third day after Jesus had had his conversation with both Philip and Nathaniel in the Galilee, which was two days' journey from the Jordan Valley. But in the Joseph Smith translation, three words are added to the third day, namely, of the week, which is to say that this miracle occurred on Tuesday. Now, there is a long-standing rule in Jewish custom that since the creation narrative speaks of the third day of creation and twice says that the creation was pronounced good, this makes Tuesday doubly blessed. Hence, it is often an appropriate day for a wedding. And this custom persists in modern times. So a wedding procession would have gathered at the home in Cana, Kirbet Kana is the way it is presently named, which is about nine miles north of Nazareth. And this town, incidentally, is only mentioned this once in the Gospels and twice in Josephus. A wedding procession would have accompanied the bride to the groom's home, and then a wedding supper, which lasted late into the evening, would have followed. The actual celebration of the wedding would have lasted probably for a week. The narrative says that Jesus and his disciples were called to this marriage, and with them, his mother. The Gospel does not speak of Mary as Mary, but refers to her always as the mother of Jesus. In the King James translation, she comes to Jesus and pleads for help with the diminishing supply of wine. A modern translation simply says, they, meaning the hosts, have no wine. In the King James, Jesus is reported to have said, Woman, what have I to do with thee? And this is interpreted by most commentators as both a rebuke and even a refusal. A softer translation in Greek would be, Woman, what has this concern of yours to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But the translation of the prophet reads, Woman, and incidentally this is not a term of disparagement, it is a high term equivalent to mother, an intimate term. And we should not forget that he used it twice in his dying words, pleading for a mother's care for John 
and John's care of her. Woman, what wilt thou have me do for thee? That will I do, for mine hour is not yet come. The phrase mine hour apparently refers all through John to the time of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. So he is saying fully, I will help. Immediately his mother turns to the servants and says, in effect, do whatever he tells you to do. So she is not feeling that she's intruding, and she does not doubt he will intervene. She just doesn't know how. Jesus calls for stone jars to be brought. And the question could be asked, why stone jars? Probably because, according to Leviticus, earthen jars or jars made of clay can become ritually unclean, and if so, are broken and disposed of. But, according to the Mishnah, stone jars cannot so become. No liquid, in other words, can cling to them. And so they bring these water pots, six of them, with no indication of how he does this, no indication that he prayed or acted in a significant or observable way, the record simply says that the water was now wine and that he asks them to take it forth to the guests. Now, the measure spoken of in the Bible, namely firkins, is apparently equal to about eight gallons. If there were six stone water jars, according to the narrative, then each held somewhere between 15 and 25 gallons, and he filled them to the brim. So the total amount of wine made would be somewhere between 120 and 150 gallons, much more than they actually needed. Moreover, we learn from the scripture that not just the amount but the quality of the wine was wonderful because the servants come to the host and say, in effect, most people preserve their best wine for the first part of the feast and save the worst for the last. And in this case, you have done the opposite. So we know that it was an act of abundance. And that's the first theme that emerges from this and related miracles. It surely means, from our modern perspective, that he made enough and to spare. And that principle extends to the whole world. The problems that separate men do not arise because there is not enough in the world to feed and clothe and shelter the world's population. It arises from geopolitical tension, from greed, and from covetousness. Jesus, who announces that he has come to bring abundant life, performs his first miracle abundantly. Let's turn now to some of the levels of teaching that are implicit in this miracle and how it is treated in the later writings of John and the other Gospels. First, there is a social level. For by coming to this wedding, by celebrating with those present 
and by participating as he does, Jesus is demonstrating that he is not withdrawing from the social life of the people. John, in contrast, had pulled away from the society, become more or less ascetic, well known for his fastings and for his Spartan diet. And later, certain of the Jews criticized Jesus for not being like John and for his associating with sinners, for breaking some of the rules of ritual cleanliness, and even for stretching or breaking the Sabbath. Jesus' response is to use the symbol of the bridegroom. I am the bridegroom. I am yet with mine own. It is time for us to live and celebrate. When I am gone, he implies, will be the time for further fasting or even for mourning. So the imagery begins with a social portrait of Jesus, which continues through his ministry. We learn that the disciples, because of this experience, are confirmed in their faith in him. One way of reading it, again, in the King James is simply that the event caused them to believe. But our own translation shows that, in fact, it was confirming, not the basis of their own faith. So already, at this initial point of his ministry, there are those who are following him gladly and with the eyes of faith. A second level has to do with newness, for he made instantly new wine. And in a parable later, Jesus compares the message of his ministry to putting new wine in new bottles, and in contrast warns that no man would put new wine in old bottles. Now the word bottle to us usually conjures something made of glass or plastic, but in the time of Jesus the containers for wine were made of animal skins and they were so made to make possible the expansion that occurs when wine ferments and if it fermented in an old skin it would simply burst it and the wine would be lost and Jesus is clearly identifying the new revelation which is both the message which can be put in words and his own presence which is the embodied revelation. He is saying the new revelation cannot be put in old bottles. The people must abandon some of their earlier and faulty traditions in order to welcome into their hearts the new message. A third level has to do with what in Greek is called the Eucharist, but what we would say is the sacrament. In this incident, and in all subsequent parables, Jesus hints or talks about a future bridal feast, the messianic banquet. He speaks to his own twelve at the Last Supper, and they both sorrow and hope, because he says on the one hand, I will not partake with you again until, and the until is when he returns in his glory. On the other hand, he promises that return, and they live in the prophetic hope. The idea of a messianic banquet is more ancient than the time of Jesus, and they speak of eating 
a special kind of fish, the Leviathan, and drinking a special kind of wine in celebration of the beginning of the Messianic era, a time at last of peace, and of a family reunion when all will sit down together in the presence of the Anointed One, the King. Well, Jesus is both teaching and demonstrating that he is that king. And in modern revelation, he gives the names of several great and ancient worthies who will be invited to and privileged to participate in the drinking of the new wine, the fruit of the vine of their own make, and promises that all those who have fully taken upon them his name will be likewise invited. In connection with this theme, there is the great promise of fruitfulness and the prediction that the millennium would bring such fruitfulness belongs to literature that is not always canonized but typical of the ancient world. Thus, for example, in an apocalypse ascribed to Daniel, it is promised that there will be such an abundance in the millennium of grain and wine and olive oil that has not been seen since the foundation of the world. He promises that in those times the ear, the meaning, of course, of uh, corn, will pour out a half quart of grain, that a vine branch will put out a hundred grape clusters, that the cluster will bear 10,000 grapes, and they will pour out a hundred measures, and the seed of the olive tree will be complete and there will be fruitfulness of all kinds, and the land will be fruitful and produce her fruits a hundredfold. It is even said in the Talmud that in that day a woman will bear a child every day with neither stress nor labor. Well, this vision of fruitfulness is entwined with Jesus as the purveyor of the abundant life, and his making of the wine forecasts that day. That leads us to the final level, which we could call the prophetic. He is now making wine at the beginning of his ministry. He does it in one stroke with divine aid. It is almost, one would say, easy, swift, masterful control of the elements. But to transform men is another problem. And he uses the image over and over, coming again from the prophet Isaiah, that in the last days the Messiah will tread the winepress, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And that out of that treading will come the healing wine. Now this would require more than the waving, as it were, of an arm. It would require his whole soul. And the passage in Isaiah adds one word, alone. We know from the passages that describe agricultural practice in the ancient world that there were three ways of working with the grapes in a wine press. One would involve the use of a stone shaped so that as one stood on it, it would rock back and forth and help thus press out the juice. A second mode would be 
to use an animal, sometimes a muzzled animal and with the hoofs protected with cloth or whatever, and utilize it in a rotating manner. But if one had neither of those, then the only final way would be to himself step into the vat barefoot and tread out the grapes alone. That is the imagery Jesus uses for himself. So we are now in a prophetic glimpse of what was to come in a vineyard, garden, orchard known as Gethsemane. We turn now to the next episode in the chronology, the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. When the Jewish Passover was near, and the account here is from John chapter 2, Jesus went again up to Jerusalem. In the temple precincts, he came upon people who were selling oxen and sheep, doves, and others were changing or exchanging coins. The location of this incident is still somewhat in doubt. Some think it was in the southwest corner as Jesus would have ascended stairs into the Temple Mount area. Others think it was just inside the inclined plains that led up from the south wall of the temple complex. But in any case, they were outside the more sacred portions of the temple area, but still they were, as he soon charged them, merchandisers. So, says the record, he made a scourge, which is not simply a whip, but some sort of combined set of cords. And with that, he drove them out of the area with their sheep and their oxen. And in the process, the tables of the money changers were overturned and the coins spilled out. And then Jesus said in rebuke, take them out, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And the disciples, we are told, recalled some words of scripture, which in modern translation say, the zeal for your house will consume me. It's in this context that then the Jews say, where is your authority? Or what sign can you give us that you are authorized to do such a thing? And Jesus replied, was not understood. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking, we know, of the temple of his own body. But the Jews took him to mean that building and said, in effect, it's taken 46 long years for that temple to be built. You're going to rebuild it in three days? And they, of course, laughed to scorn. But he was talking about his own body. And when his body was resurrected from the dead, his disciples recalled this saying. From this incident alone, and not to mention the earlier days when Jesus came into the temple precincts as a boy, we learn that he placed the temple on sacred ground and that he revered it. And as a matter of record, there are three different phrases that he uses for it, each in approval and divine sanction. 
he calls it first my father's house. In another setting, he calls it my house. And toward the end of his ministry, as he is prophesying its destruction and the dispersion of the Jewish people, he speaks of it as your house and adds, it will be left unto you desolate. And that has a connection with another prophecy in which he said that not one stone of the temple would be left upon another, which was historically fulfilled with the Roman conquest of Titus. Not a single stone was left. This reverence for the house of the Lord continued in the Jewish consciousness for many centuries. In fact, the benedictions which are spoken by Orthodox Jews daily in their prayers includes a benediction that pleads for the return to Jerusalem, but then says the following words in English translation, Accept, O Lord our God, your people Israel and their prayer, and restore the service to the Holy of Holies of your temple, and receive with favor the offerings and the prayers of Israel. And may the service of Israel always be pleasing to you, and may our eyes see your return to Zion in mercy. On the other hand, the Jews have had an official day of lamentation for the destruction of the temple. On the ninth of their month Av, every year in the 19th centuries that have followed the destruction. And by a coincidence of history, apparently the temple's first destruction and second occurred on the same day. So on this day, every year, they mourn the loss of the temple and its destruction. Further, even in the midst of the time of the greatest rejoicing in a Jewish life, namely at a wedding, a glass is broken to remind the couple that life is not truly fulfilled until the temple is rebuilt. And some couples do not finish any room in their home as a constant reminder of the absence of the temple. So the loss of the temple was a major shock to the Jews, and the hope for its return remains in at least some of their hearts a great and intense hope. This concludes the recording on this side of the cassette. You may continue the program by turning the cassette over.